So grab your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we actually finished the message we began last Sunday on verses 1 through 10. So follow along as I read that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, have, as we having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Father God, We thank you so much for uh, just all the opportunities we've had this morning to connect with you in worship, in the fellowship, in the songs, in the prayers, in even giving. And now, God, through your word, we just pray that your spirit would be free to move in our hearts and lives today. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so last uh, Sunday, uh, I mentioned that this paragraph could be divided into three different uh, main points, and we covered the first two uh, then. Uh, Point one was the fact of what happens after we die. Uh, We will get new bodies. That's what Paul was talking about when he said if this tent is torn down, we're going to get a building from God made without hands. Uh, And that is an absolute certain fact. Uh, There may be some details about that, uh, lots of details that we don't know for sure and certain and all those kinds of things, but I didn't want us to get bogged down in details and miss the main point. And so that was the main point. And one of those details, I actually had a couple people ask me about it this week, is the timing of when we receive our new bodies. And and without going into a, a long study on that, which would take us off topic, from the information that we can gather from Scripture, it would appear most likely that we get these bodies, these new bodies, at the return of Christ when the resurrection uh, takes place. Um, just one example of a verse that would support that would be 1 Corinthians uh, 15, which says, Behold, I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, sleep being a euphemism for die, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are alive, uh, and, and we will be changed. And, and so, uh, it's, it's, since the dead are being raised, that imperishable body, it seems likely that when it talks about us being changed, it's talking about going from our mortal bodily bodies now to our eternal uh, bodies. Um, so again, just understand when we talk about this is what happens next, uh, we're, we're speaking generally, uh, not specifically, uh, not worrying about all these details we're, we might be uncertain about. But what we know 
what we can be for sure of is that at some point we will have new bodies that will be ours for all of eternity to live and enjoy God in the new heavens and new earth that he has planned for us. That, that's what comes next. The second point uh, from last week was the basis for that truth. And, and the basis was the fact that that's what God planned and purposed to do. And whatever he plans... He accomplishes. Uh, Verse 5 stated that for us. It says, Now he who uh, prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So in this verse, you have God preparing you for that specific purpose, for something, but but, uh, or I mean purposing that thing, but then he talks about preparing us for it. And, And again, as we looked at last Sunday, the way we are prepared for that purpose is by faith in Jesus Christ. Only those who come to him in repentance for forgiveness of sins and receive new eternal life, only for them are these promises uh, true and and, uh, relevant. So that's what we had. We had the fact of what happens. We had the basis of what happens. Today, our focus is on point three, which are the implications of uh, what happens next. In other words... Does this truth, does this idea of our heavenly home and new bodies and, and new life, is that just uh, something for someday down the road, you know, when, when Jesus comes back and, and all that kind of stuff? Or does it make a difference in the way I live right now? And, and obviously, uh, otherwise this would be a really short point, uh, I believe it, it, it makes a, a difference right now in how we live. How many of you have ever heard the saying, He's so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. You know, I've heard that saying a number of times, and I'm not exactly sure what it's really even supposed to mean except for you know it's not good, right? And apparently there are some who believe that if you focus on our heavenly home and what's to come in eternity, then that somehow makes you inadequate or useless for dealing with real-life issues today. It's almost as if they think it's some type of escapist uh, type of attitude. You know, I'm just going to ignore uh, the current problems of this world and problems of my life, pretend like they don't uh, exist, and, and I'm just going to ignore them by just thinking about how wonderful heaven's going to be, and, and just, I'm just going to worry about getting there someday and just forget about what life is like right now. Well, the Apostle Paul, he would not have fit into a category where he would say that's true. He would say that focusing on the reality of our eternal home makes a huge difference for now. And and, and you can tell that because he started the very next verse as he moves into this application with the word, therefore, right? Therefore lets you know, hey, here's something that I'm going to apply to what we just taught. And what we just taught was the fact and basis of our new body. And now here's what it means for you, he's saying. So that's why that that therefore is important. Uh, And Paul actually has two therefores. He's got this one in in verse 6 and one in verse 9. So we know that he's got two application points in here uh, for us. Anybody remember uh, the Dr. Seuss book, Cat in the Hat? And in that book, you know, you had thing one and thing two. Has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, except for the fact that what Paul does here is is he has difference one and difference two that this uh, truth is going to make for us. And the first difference is found in verses six through eight. 
uh, you may have noticed if you were following along in your own Bibles as, as I read that section, that verse 7 is a hyphenated verse, meaning it was kind of an additional auxiliary thought to the main point that's contained in verses 6 and 8. So, so let's look at the main point, just verses 6 and 8. It says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay, so the, the first practical difference that this truth makes in the way that we live right now is the fact that it gives us good courage. Did you notice that was repeated twice in there? And, and there's actually two points to, to gaining that good courage, having that built up in us. And, and the first one might seem just a little confusing at first glance, but I, I think it makes sense as we look at it. According to verse 6, it says, we have good courage because we know that this current state, what he calls being at home in the body, right? We are absent from the Lord. And that's supposed to help have us good courage. And and now maybe right away someone says, well, wait a minute, I, I don't get that. that. I don't think that's even true, right? That, doesn't the Bible say that when you accept Jesus Christ, he comes to live right in your heart and that he's always with you? I mean, wasn't, wasn't the very last promise Jesus made when he gave the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? So how can Paul claim that we're absent from the Lord? And in what way would that give us good courage? Well, uh, the answer to that apparent conundrum uh, becomes obvious when we look at both the second part of, of having good courage in verse 8 and that hyphenated uh, section in verse 7. So see, the second part of having that good courage says this, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, okay, a separation from the physical, and to be at home with the Lord. So now it becomes uh, apparent that Paul is talking in these verses not about the spiritual presence of Christ, which is always ours, but the actual tangible physical presence. Jesus is no longer physically walking on earth as he did in the days of the gospel, right? Peter, James, John, Mary, Martha, I mean, all those people, uh, they could see Jesus. They could sashay right up to him and shake his hand. They could hear his voice as it echoed across the valleys as he was preaching. They could feel the weight of his arm as he would put it on their shoulders to, to encourage or comfort them. We don't have that privilege. We are not present with the Lord in that way. And that's why Paul added that hyphenated statement in verse 7, for we walk by faith not by sight. Everything we know and experience in our walk with Christ is taken by faith, right? The, the Bible says that when you accept Jesus Christ, He comes to dwell right inside of you, right? But you cannot go down to the hospital and get an x-ray or an MRI and put it up on the thing and say, oh, look, there's Jesus, right? There's no physical evidence of that truth. We walk by faith. The Bible tells us that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He washes all our sins away. But there's no physical evidence of that transition. You cannot watch your sins being washed off you and running down the drain somewhere. And yes, Jesus did say that He would never leave us or forsake us. But that is not a 
physical truth. It is a spiritual truth. And, 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 and the wonderful thing, of course, we, we understand and know is a spiritual truth is no less real than a physical truth. It's just different. Since you can't see them and touch them, they must be taken by faith. So now back, back to our main point here. How does the fact that we're not currently physically present with the Lord help us to have good courage? Well, because, as verse 8 says, we know that the preferred state is yet to come. The one where we are absent from this body and then literally physically present with the Lord. If our better circumstances, think, of, think how this logic is. If our better circumstances are yet to come, that's what gives us good courage now as we face whatever we may have to face, whatever comes our way. Because we understand that no matter how good it is or how bad it gets, the best is yet to be. And Paul addressed this very issue one time while he was sitting in prison. Okay, so definitely not what we would call uh, very good circumstances, right? He was facing a hard set of circumstances. He's waiting in prison, and yes, he said he anticipated that he would be set free, but he didn't know it for sure. It wasn't a certainty. He could also be put to death. That was a real possibility. And as he was contemplating those two possibilities in his life, he was able to write this to the Philippian church. He says, well, I think about that, and he says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You see what he's saying there? He, he is saying that he might be killed on one hand, but even if he was set free so that he was able to return to ministry and to service, it would be better, and he didn't just say better or a little bit better, he said very much better to be put to death in prison so that he could depart this earthly life and be with the Lord. He expressed that same thought much more succinctly in verse 21 of that chapter when he said, but for me to live is Christ. If, I, if I'm going to live, it's all about Jesus. But if I die, to die is gain. So now we have a question we have to ask ourselves, don't we? Do we truly believe that? Do, do we embrace that truth to the point where being at home with the Lord is a far better option than anything we could gain or have or experience down here? See, here, here's the deal. The, the more we would grasp hold of that truth, the greater our courage grows for living for Jesus right here and now. See, if, if my next step is going to be face-to-faith -face with Jesus, do I really care what people think about me down here? Right? Does it really matter what people think about me? If I'm not worried about people-pleasing or being accepted by the in-crowd, well, I have a lot more courage to follow Jesus. I, I can stand firm in the face of opposition and adversity. I don't have to impress people and I don't have to be concerned about what they think about me because my concern is what Jesus thinks about me, not them. 
Now let's take it another step. Does it really matter what happens to me down here? If that's the next step and it's a, a preferred step, it's way better, does it really matter what happens to me down here? Again, not, not that anyone wants to you know, be purposely beaten by angry crowds or, or, or thrown into prison by a corrupt anti-Christian government or killed because you refuse to recant your faith in Jesus Christ. We don't, we, we don't desire to miss out on job promotions uh, or even get fired because of our Christian beliefs. Nobody hopes to be ostracized from their friends or, or from family or from organizations or, or even from your communities just because we follow Jesus Christ and have determined we're going to stand for what the Bible teaches. But the point is we can face all of those things and more with good courage because, because we know the truth. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better. It's the preferred state, right? That's what verse 8 says back in Second uh, Corinthians. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Now again, tough question for us to ask ourselves. Is that really my preference? And see, I I know it's hard because we can see and feel this current world. And and, and we have stuff that we think we'd like to experience. So, So most of us are probably in that place where we would say, you know, intellectually at least, well, yeah, I would like heaven, but... And then we all add that, that but on the end, right? Because there's things... We want to do our experience here. When I was young, it would be, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I get heaven. It's going to be great. But I really want to get married. I, I, I want to have kids. I, I want to be a grandpa. I want, you know, maybe for you it's a certain job or achievement or goal. I'd really like to experience that. It's, uh, it's hard. I, I get it. It's hard for us to truly say we would prefer to leave this world and enter the next. But as we learn, learn to start letting go of those things and to embrace the reality of what God has planned for us, well, then we will have good courage to truly live this life. Live this life in a God-honoring way. So that's difference one that this truth makes for our life right now. Let's move on to difference two. Check out verse nine. Therefore, we, are, uh, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So again, the word therefore lets us know this is another application to the previous points of the fact and the basis of, of what's coming next. And it's saying it causes us to want to be pleasing to God. But how? How does knowing about what comes next motivate us to be pleasing? 
I mean, after all, it could actually go the other direction. I've seen people argue it the other direction, right? When a person figures out that heaven is not based upon the merit system, right? It's not how good you are and how many religious things you do and how much money you give and how many times you show up at church or any of those type of things, but rather it's based solely upon your faith in Jesus Christ because of His grace. Well, then people can go to the opposite side of things and say, well, woohoo, I guess I can live however I want to live because I'm saved by grace. Now, biblically, there are multiple issues with that that we're not going to get into today, but not the least of which is to say that if you have no desire to live for Christ, no desire to be like Christ, then the Bible would indicate there's a high probability that you don't belong to Christ, no matter what you might claim or say. But we still have to answer that question. If we're saved by grace, well, how does the knowledge of the life to come motivate us to want to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? And that's where verse 10 comes in, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, it matters how you live now for all of eternity. And and before we get into that, explaining exactly what this does mean, uh, we need to be clear about what it doesn't mean, right? Because this verse is not talking about salvation as if you're going to stand before God and he's going to have a giant scale out in his hand and he'll pile all your good deeds on one side and all your bad deeds on the other side and and then see how the scale tips out and determine whether or not you're going to get into heaven. That is not what this is talking about at all. We've already established the fact that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. That that is the way it works. It's not about works at all And, and there are many, many scriptures that can be used to support that but the classic verses the one that probably most all of us know of course is ephesians 2 8 9 right where it says for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast it's not about works at all and because that is true of us then romans 8 1 is also true there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because he saved you by his grace. He's taken care of all your sins. So now there's no condemnation. Zero. None whatsoever. All your sins have been completely judged and paid for at the cross. There's nothing left for you to pay. And that's why there can be absolutely no condemnation. So if this verse is not about our sins, well, what is, what is the meaning of verse 10? Well, let's, let's just break it down phrase by phrase. So first it identifies uh, what happens to whom. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And and the word all in in this uh, context is a limited all because it's speaking of those who uh, are are raised in Christ. So it's, it's all believers, all Christians. These are ones who will be present with the Lord when they're absent from the body. So every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's... Uh, um, uh, uh, and and it, it, it'll matter how you live. But again, we understand this is a little bit different judgment seat. There's two judgment seats talked about in the Bible. Uh, one is the great white throne judgment. Every single person in the world will stand before God at the great white throne, and that's the point where he will divide the believers from the unbelievers. 
But this judgment seat is something different. It is only for believers who will stand in front of it. But notice, it is every believer. It says all must appear, every single Christian. Well, since we're not going to be judged for our sins, right? Because they've already been taken care of. They've been judged at the cross. The penalty's already been paid for them. What's the purpose of this judgment? We'll take a look at the second phrase. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. The, The purpose of this judgment is recompensing, right? Well, recompensing means to be paid, to be compensated, or to be rewarded. And I think the best understanding here is the idea of rewarded. Uh, the Greek word for judgment seat here is, is bima. And, and the bima was a, a Greek structure. It was in every city. And, and it was a raised platform or every um, uh, uh, ruling city. It was, it was a raised platform. It had two main purposes. The first uh, purpose was it was uh, a judicial place where judgments would come down. So on this raised platform, so the whole crowd could see them, uh, a ruler would hand down a judgment about certain particular things. But the second purpose of it was the platform on which the athletes would receive their victory crown, where they were raised up above the crowd and they, people could see them and hear them. Well, since our legal judgment has already been taken care of, no more condemnation because of Christ, then it makes sense to view this platform as that of receiving reward, especially in the light of the fact that the verse explicitly says that its purpose is for recompense, for payment, for reward. So now all of a sudden, this verse goes from sounding negative to positive, right? Because it's all about your reward. However, there should still be uh, some sense of apprehension because we've yet to see how it is our reward is determined. And that comes in the final phrase, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So now we see the idea of a judgment to see, it still makes sense here, but it's the idea of an evaluation of your life, and in particular, your life after you have come to Jesus Christ. Your reward is going to be based on what you have done, how you have lived. Even for the Christian, there is a day of reckoning coming. Now, when we see those terms good and bad, we tend to immediately think of right and wrong. But but remember, our wrongs, our sins, have already been paid for and eliminated by God. God says he disregards them. He has buried them in the deepest sea. He puts them behind his back. He remembers them no more. So so it's not talking about our sins in here. And in this context, the good and bad is a, a level of valuation, right? Good being something that is worthy, bad being something that is worthless. Good Good being something that will bring about uh, a reward and payment. Bad being something that is deserving of no honor or recognition. It's a valuation of what you have done. As Christians, we should be constantly asking ourselves, what is the value of the way I am living for Christ? How are the deeds done in my body, which would include my mouth, the way I speak, how are those going to be evaluated by God? What, what would be considered good and what would be considered worthless? You know, Paul had already given these Corinthians 
a, a vivid illustration of how this is going to work in the first letter that he uh, sent to them. He said, now, if any man builds on the foundation, the foundation being your faith in Jesus Christ, salvation through faith, if anybody builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So did you see what's happening there? All of your works, everything you've done for your whole life is going to be piled up and it's either wood, hay and stubble or straw or it's gold and silver and precious uh, stones. And it's going to be revealed. What's going to be revealed? The quality. The quality of your... The valuation. I, I, there was a, a, a group out when, when I was in high school and college called Isaac Air Freight. They were a Christian comedy team. And, and Well, this will tell you how old I am. They put out cassette tapes with, with, uh, with their comedy on there. And I, I had several of them. And I remember one where they, they did a, a skit... Of, of those verses right there. And, and uh, you know, you, you have the foreman, uh, uh, okay, pile up all this guy's work, get him on here, and you got the sounds of, uh, of uh, forklift and crane piling all this guy's work. And I only remember two lines from this whole skit, other than the general idea, but two specific lines. One of them is the foreman saying, uh, oh, that time right there where he couldn't stop to help the little old lady change his tire because he'd be late for Bible study, yeah, pile that one up on top here. You know, uh, what's going to be the value of our works, right? And, and, and then the very last line is what I remember. You had everything piled up and the foreman says, okay, back away and fire comes to burn it all. And the last line was the guy going, huh, there's not very much left, is there? How will we answer the question what things are good, what things will bring a reward, what things are worthy, what things are going to be burnt up in our life. And you know, it's not always an easy question to answer because God doesn't give us a list. Don't you, don't you like it if God just give us a list and, and say, do these things? But he doesn't. You know why? Because like so many other things with God, it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart a camping trip with your family could be more spiritually valuable than a missions trip, depending on your heart. So it can help us decide what kind of things are of eternal spiritual value. If we ask a few questions, questions like, is it my desire to honor and glorify and obey God? Am I seeking first His kingdom, His righteousness, or am I pursuing my own desires? Through love, am I serving one another? Or am I looking for ways to get people to serve me? Are these actions loving God and loving people, the two highest commandments? See, we will stand before Jesus someday. And yes, we'll gain new bodies to live in perfect new heaven and we're going to be with Him for all eternity. And at that moment, the Bible says, we'll be changed to be made like Christ. And we've been given the Holy Spirit in the meantime uh, to strengthen us and empower us for godly living. Because all these things are true, 
it makes a difference in how we live right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad he said we can start with the difference that it brings good courage. We can have the courage to live for Christ right now. And we have the motivation to live for Christ. Because yes, someday we'll give an account. But remember, it's an account for reward. Because God's a good God. Let's pray. Father God, I know there's just so much more that could be said about these verses. We trust your Spirit is working in our hearts and minds today to encourage us, to build us up, to motivate us. Because God, we do want our lives to count. We want gold, silver, and precious stones to remain. And only you can do that in us and only you can empower us for that. So we give ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.